0: We know now, in the 33rd season since the advent of the downfall, that when Commissioner A. Bartlett-Giamatti announced that Pete Rose would be permanently banned from baseball, he also laid out what would be required to ensure that baseball remained America's pastime. Giamatti.
1: Let there be no doubt or dissent about our goals for baseball or our dedication to it, nor about our vigilance and vigor and indeed our patience. In protecting the game from blemish or stain or disgrace.
0: In the years since that moment, Giamatti's prognostication has proved undeniably accurate. The failure to adhere to it, the absence of vigilance and vigor in protecting the game, has yielded blemish, stain, and disgrace. New Yorker writer Roger Angel recognized the early signs of that failure during the famed confrontation of panelists at Yale in 1986. Quote, our ability to care, Angel said, was precariously balanced. Baseball, he reminded the audience, and Commissioner Peter Ubaroth, quote, is not indestructible. Bart Giamatti understood it. Ubaroth did not. Here's Neil Proto.
2: Commissioner Ubaroth had colluded secretly with the owners to deny the right of players to seek higher salaries. It was a premeditated act of cheating. They were caught. Fay Vincent wrote that, quote, I cannot underestimate the damage done to the game through that illegal action. It's not going too far to call that transgression baseball's original sin. Rose's gambling and his collusion with others was occurring at the same time. The two cannot be separated. They meld into each other as moral and ethical wrongdoing. Rose and Ubarov had legitimized the insidious force of greed and cheating. It seeped deeply into baseball. Jamadi saw it. The battle was just beginning.
0: Neil, you wrote that in April 1989, just months before Jamadi's Pete Rose decision, about your experiences in Little League that mattered to you 30 years later, that, quote, the experience played fully, Created an enduring connection between you and the tradition of baseball that no one, not cynics, not men seeking to preserve the game for themselves, not gamblers or drug users, could or should be allowed to despoil.
2: Diane, Jamadi understood that connection between childhood and Major League Baseball. The strong, once impregnable pull among memories, aspirations, and the unspoiled, authentic game. And especially, its relationship to the public trust, the moral and ethical obligation he believed baseball owners and players and commissioners owe the public. The game doesn't belong to them, he said. The people own it. And there's more. The Little League, through all its participants in memory and in values taught, the Baseball Hall of Fame in its permanent elevation of character and courage in judging conduct, the umpires... Who Jamadi admired and who stand central to ensuring fairness on the field, and the sports writers of America who write and talk about baseball daily, or those who vote for admission into the Hall of Fame. They are collectively today engaged in the ongoing epic battle that Jamadi began. These women and men, girls and boys that Jamadi understood as knights, intent on attaining Elysian Field and preserving the authenticity of the game against the snakes in the garden. The Mark Zuckerberg mentality, the amoral imperative of greed.
0: You mean the epic battle of values?
2: Indeed, I do.
0: This is Diane Smith, and this is Downfall. Episode 2, Baseball's Public Trust and the Battle for the Game. Written and devised by Neil Thomas Proto. Production, sound, and editing by Baobab Tree Studios. Music provided by freeplaymusic.com. Special gratitude to Yale University's manuscripts and archives, the Baseball Hall of Fame, Peter Norton Symphony Space Selected Shorts, CNN, and Associate Professor and Actor Marcus Bartlett Giamatti of Temple University's School of Theater, Film, and Media Arts. Let's begin with Pete Rose. Today, In the late summer shade of 2021,
2: Diane Rose continues to be elevated periodically because denying him eligibility into baseball, a decision the commissioner makes, is a safe means of demonstrating ethics while tolerating notorious immorality elsewhere. Today, Rose's request for eligibility is a welcomed sideshow.
0: In your recent article, Neil, Bart Giamatti, The Quest for Fairness in Cooperstown, you wrote, quote, The looming apparition of greed no longer hides within the history baseball is intent on abandoning, except as expensive theater. The apparition knows its prey. Cooperstown's examples of character and courage, replaced by Pete Rose and the Little League player, dollar bills jutting from his glove, plainly on the take. You're far beyond Pete Rose, and so too is baseball. The deformed bodies from steroids, unpunished by baseball, the Red Sox and Astros' boldly crass form of stealing and transmitting signals, all without punishment. A whole new season of distorted statistics and standings. And now the deliberate use of foreign substance on baseballs to artificially alter their spin? All atop the collusion engaged in by Pete Rose and Peter Uberoff's collusion with the owners.
2: Collectively, Diane... These deliberate methods of cheating were considered acceptable by coaches, managers, and commissioners before and while they were being done. The mere mention of ethics or morality or integrity that underpinned or individual and collective failure of public duty and responsibility is rarely ever uttered.
0: And the underlying cause, how this classical greed was transformed in form into the 21st century?
2: Ben Reiter of Sports Illustrated described the mentality in his thoroughly researched podcast, The Edge. Quote, according to a 2020 ESPN.com article, the percentage of Ivy League graduates running club baseball operations has risen from 3% to 43% in two decades. Their skill is in economics, mathematics, computer programming, and science not morality or ethics. That is, as Ryder also recounts, they are an organization, quote, run top to bottom as a hypermodel, data-driven big business, using bleeding-edge competitive strategies borrowed from Wall Street. And those people writer interviewed who were involved in or investigated the Astros' cheating scandal said, quote, I hadn't stopped to think about the cost of ruthless efficiency. And, quote, Ethical sourcing was not high on one future owner's list. And, quote, we didn't look at the moral compass. Their imperative, as Ryder also described it, was always, quote, to win.
0: So, Neil, you're saying that something else is happening, a more insidious threat than cheating.
2: Yes. famed sports writer Roger Angel struck into the heart of his own apprehension when he told Uberoff, at Yale, in 1986, that, quote, the notion that the only thing the team has to offer is winning is a very destructive sort of thing, particularly in baseball. It's a misapprehension of what this game is about. Diane, in the amoral imperative to win at any cost, an acceptable and collusive mentality of greed has taken hold openly. Conveyed by silence or compromise, or the pretense of official inquiry without consequence, from commissioner down through the managers and players and back again, that no longer depends on the singular player and deliberate act of conventional cheating. It may be, in fact, a more contagious and now all pervasive strain of what Barchi and Modi describe as the cult personality completely exempt from conventional expectations, and completely protected from sanction. That is, the Zuckerberg cult, writ large.
0: The cult, protected from sanction, and premeditated cheating have now melded together?
2: Yes, in amoral, harmonic agreement. Everyone on that field except the umpires, and everyone in the dugout and clubhouse can no longer be assumed to be playing, as Jamadi put it, above board, by identical conditions and rules and with identical equipment in an authentic contest designed to declare a winner. In play today is, in Jamadi's words, quote, the hunger to win at any cost, even at the cost of destroying the game. Diane? Baseball as an institution has separated itself from the historical values that the public once relied upon to identify the game with the country.
0: This is Diane Smith, and this is Downfall. Episode 2, Baseball's Public Trust and the Battle for the Game. Written and devised by Neil Thomas Proto. Production, sound, and editing by Baobab Tree Studios. Music provided by FreePlayMusic.com special gratitude to Yale University's Manuscripts and Archives, the Baseball Hall of Fame, Peter Norton Symphony Space Selected Shorts, CNN, and Associate Professor and Actor Marcus Bartlett-Giamatti of Temple University's School of Theater, Film, and Media Arts. This is the moment to ask some central questions. I'll start with this preface, which appeared in the New York Times in July. Quote, Only recently, as umpires checked for foreign substances on various pitchers, one major league player said, if I'm a young kid at the game and I'm asking my dad, well, hey, what's going on? Why are they getting checked? What's he going to say? Well, they think everyone's cheating? Is that what we want the game to be about? Like we're assuming you're cheating? I just think that's a bad look. What are we watching when we enter a baseball stadium? Is it skill and luck? Or is it just make-believe, pretending to be sport? Who really belongs in baseball? How are the players for the Astros selected? Where was the algorithm about character? Or is it that character, as the Hall of Fame defines it, just doesn't matter? And has the pervasive and the acceptable greed mentality in Major League Baseball slithered down into colleges and little leagues? Has it displaced the once-valued purposes of team play and the valued meaning of youth baseball as education about life? Associate professor and actor, Marcus Giamatti, has joined us to explore the answers.
3: My father returned to his cause for concern about young people in 1989 in his University of Michigan Law School lectures, where he said the following. For some, particularly young professional athletes with no other strong culture or collegiate life except to be mercenaries, that is, those for whom there is so little else in the way of intellectual or familial or social ties outside of sports, it is easy to succumb to the cultic lure of the special world of sports. Blame or guilt is not the issue. The issue is to warn us against giving over to our young as hostages to any powerful social convention, even to one as seemingly innocent or pleasurable as sports. As my father also said, These young players, quote, imitate the professionals.
0: And, Neil, there is the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision that ensures that mentality will go directly to colleges and beyond.
2: It does, Diane. The Supreme Court's decision, which requires the NCAA to ensure proper compensation to student-athletes, affirms Marcus's father's deepest apprehension. Not because student-athletes aren't entitled fairly, to additional educational benefits. They are and always have been, but because university presidents, the NCAA hierarchy, and the coaches have adopted greed as central to their purpose. And the decision, the Supreme Court decision, was about the values underlying the antitrust laws, capitalism, competition, and monopoly. The NCAA and its member schools had exploited athletics mercilessly with no regard for the selfish lessons they boldly taught every student, every day. And now they've wrought radically altered expectations in the college culture and the heightened prospect of old, new, and suspect forms of recruitment, alumni involvement, and a more malevolent group of gamblers astutely skilled at the manipulation of money and odds with young people's lives. And I wouldn't exempt college administrators from the same tactics. The NCAA's greed has been caught on the petard of Major League Baseball's mentality. And so in time may the aspirations of college athletes. The cult, the separation of individual players from their team, will now be rewarded conveniently by the same people already driven by the cult's mentality and money.
0: So then this is the moment to ask a central question. Has the responsibility for the preservation of baseball shifted? Is the battle against the snakes in the garden still winnable?
2: Diane, in order to answer your questions, it's time not to depart from this dialogue, but to expand it. There is something to learn from poetry, movies, the Baseball Hall of Fame, the sports writers, and Bart Giamatti's belief that umpires had an enduring duty, enduring beyond the commissioners and owners and transient players— to ensure authenticity and fairness on the field. But before we explore that, foremost, let's make plain at the outset that Jamadi had no illusions about baseball's dark side. He engaged in many battles in his lifetime, some ferociously, including against Pete Rose and the lie. Also, when we talk about movies or poetry, it's not about illusion or delusion or the nostalgic embrace of the good old days. when well, the Hall of Fame named its monthly magazine Memories and Dreams, and elevated character and courage in judging others. It's about aspirations and inspiration for young people and their friends and families and mentors. It's about caring about the game. It's also about how sports writers think and vote about whose plaque, including umpires, is placed in the Hall of Fame. It's about the battle over values. The Hall has remained steadfast. The sports writers have had a long memory when it came to steroids and likely will continue to when the members of the Houston Astros and Boston Red Sox who engaged in cheating come before them. These nights are all as Bart Giamatti thought about second baseman Bobby Doerr Always in the game.
0: Neil, let's first dispose of the, quote, early Mark Zuckerberg model that you posited right from the outset. Your analog to who and what baseball has become. It gets us right into popular movies, The Social Network, written by Aaron Sorkin.
2: Diane, The Social Network captured Zuckerberg at Harvard in 2004. Selfish, amoral greed, the cheating through lies, stealth, and manipulation of friends, It didn't matter who he harmed or how he did it, or how anyone else did it. It was the detachment from anything resembling a public or personal responsibility. But the social network warrants a prelude, actually an unexpectedly deep connection to the movie Moneyball, also written in part by Aaron Sorkin. Oakland Athletics in 2002, two years earlier the emergence only seemingly benign of exactly what Ben Ryder of Sports Illustrated captured in The Edge that has led to the pervasiveness of the Zuckerberg mentality. Moneyball set the stage. Oakland manager Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, says to Peter Brand, played by Jonah Hill, early in the movie, quote, It's an unfair game. Oakland doesn't have the money to hire and keep the best players. They left for the wealthy Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees. Brand's perspective on selecting new players was based on very different mathematical factors and measurements than Oakland scouts were accustomed to using. In the algorithmic departure from custom, an individual player's character or values, morals, ethical conduct, family life, had in Brand's calculations... No mathematical relationship to the financial cost to Oakland or performance on the field. The game on the field wasn't about the authentic playing of the game or even the meaning of team play. It was just about winning. Peter Brand had never played baseball. Aaron Sorkin made him, serendipitously for our purpose, a Yale graduate, a place and an amoral mentality that Bart Giamatti witnessed. At the end of the movie, Dean declined the offer from the Boston Red Sox. At that moment, the Zuckerberg mentality affirmed the amoral imperative of the new algorithm, to win. Not to win fairly, just to win. Boston now had it. In time, it used it to cheat.
0: This is Diane Smith, and this is Downfall. Episode two, Baseball's Public Trust and the Battle for the Game. Written and devised by Neil Thomas Proto. Production, sound, and editing by Baobab Tree Studios. Music provided by FreePlayMusic.com. Special gratitude to Yale University's Manuscripts and Archives, the Baseball Hall of Fame, Peter Norton Symphony Space Selected Shorts, CNN, and associate professor and actor Marcus Bartlett-Giamatti of Temple University's School of Theater, Film, and Media Arts. Before we come to the natural, let's expand this discussion further and deeper into something we all witness at a baseball game that Bart Giamatti reminded us is central to what baseball seems to have forgotten. And it's not about algorithms or individual players or players at all. Here's a melding of Giamatti's words. It's about the meaning of home.
4: Home is an English word virtually impossible to translate into other tongues. All literary romance, all romance epic, derives from the Odyssey and it is about going home. It's about rejoining. Baseball is, of course, entirely about going home. And to that extent, because it's the only game you ever heard of where you want to get back to where you started. All the other games are territorial. You want to get his or her territory, not baseball. Baseball simply wants to get you from here back around to here. And that, uh, that, I think, is why baseball is its own long poem, its own endless epic.
0: Giamatti is right. In its way, that form of poetry is practiced by many fans, expressed as an early memory that lingers unaffected by the passage of time, then is shared with special warmth decades later with friends or a child seeing her first game. What Giamatti once described with insightful eloquence as the green fields of the mind, the fan as poet in a moment's recollection that takes place in the bleachers, in a living room, in the backyard, in a family. Yet, as we both know, there is a simple poem about baseball that is widely known, filled with baseball's high expectations, uncertainties, deep disappointments, and the meaning of place. The city. Mudville. Ernest Thayer's Casey at the Bat. We've asked Marcus Giamatti to rejoin us because the poem has resonance to his father's words about the city and the future of baseball and as an introduction to the film The Natural.
3: Diana Neal. It was the ninth inning. Mudville was at bat, the score was 4-2, to two. the Mudville 9 behind. There were two outs, and all seemed lost. When, to the roar of the local fans, two players got hits. Jimmy was safe at second, and Flynn was a hugging third, and Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. The first two pitches are strikes, yet Casey is unperturbed. The crowd stands in awe, mouths are agape in anticipation. We get to the heart of the poem. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go, and now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out.
2: Thank you, Marcus. You captured a lot.
3: There's one related anecdote I want to share. Cincinnati Reds catcher and Hall of Fame recipient, Johnny Bench, took to the stage in Cincinnati, Ohio and read Casey at the bat. The poem was visualized in music by, coincidentally, Frank Proto and performed by the Cincinnati Symphony. My father also coincidentally awarded Johnny Bench his plaque when he was voted into the Hall of Fame.
0: Thank you for that too. Baseball and memory. Here's the transition, the poem visualized in the movies. Neil, we're now into the movie The Natural.
2: Diane, greed and cheating and the force of temptation emerges early in The Natural. It centers around the whammer, the Babe Ruth replicant, who accepts the challenge from the young aspiring Roy Hobbs and his manager that Hobbs can strike the whammer out in three pitches. Max Mercy, the ill-intentioned sports writer with connections to underworld gambling, welcomes and becomes part of the fray. The collusion among them has formed. Added is the alluring female, Harriet Byrd, the illicit force of temptation. She motivates the whammer to accept the challenge. In three pitches, Hobbs humiliates him. The mighty Casey is out. But it's in the moment, the poignant eye movement by temptation from the whammer to Hobbs that tells the story of risk in baseball. Max Mercy remains in the game, shortly to return with the underworld gambler in tow. But temptation remains as well, in a new, more dangerous iteration, the alluring blonde, Memo Paris. They all meld together and into baseball when Hobbes, a new member of the New York Knights, is introduced by mercy to the amoral gambler Gus Sands, his connection to Memo Paris, and to the owner of the New York Knights, the judge. Evil now goes from sex as the method of destruction to the flat-out lure of money, greed, and cheating to attain it including from those within baseball. The snakes in the garden are set, though not fully recognized yet by Hobbes. The battle is set. The quest for fairness and authenticity has begun. Hobbes becomes the knight in the Renaissance epic, now confronting the impediments, pitfalls, the misrepresentations, the threat to his life, and sometimes failures. What Jamadi understood as the uncertainties of fate, Jamadi explained it this way. The great epics of the Renaissance are tales of journeys, crusades, wandering, pilgrimages, explorations, all leave-takings in search of a home or something permanent, final, and fixed. For Hobbes, there were two, Elysian field, in the pure Hobokian sense, and home, the farm, iris, and as he came to learn, His son.
0: We know that in the end, it's his moral and ethical imperative that, when melded with the moral imperatives of his coaches and teammates, including the failed effort to separate them one from the other by greed, baseball is redeemed, the quest attained.
2: Indeed it was, Diane, yet there is one other force in play that appears throughout the natural, often without a word said. It's the imperative of young people, girls and boys who want to play the game, who want the ethical model, who are forming values, which also matters to the parents and grandparents with them at the game there in Mudville. And that force is made most poignant when Hobbs, sitting in the locker room under questioning for Max Mercy, asks him, did you ever play ball, Max? No, I never have. That, Diane, is memory. Back to childhood and it's also the thread missing in the algorithm.
0: Let's dwell on one element in Hobbes' quest, the effort to separate individual players from the team, here with the bribe and suspicion of each other, today with greed and cheating and no longer confined to individual players.
2: Ironically, Diane, it's one reason Pete Rose lingers, and this gets us back to Jamadi. Rose, before his downfall, was once among the dwindling thread of players, for example, Derek Jeter of the Yankees or Cal Ripken of the Baltimore Orioles or Johnny Bench of the Cincinnati Reds, certainly Henry Aaron of Atlanta, who once daily fortified the connection between the fans and the player, the reason why, as Roger Angel put it, fans retain their quote, ability to care. The ethical nature of Jeter's or Ripkin's or Bench's or Aaron's commitment to baseball and their longevity with one team mattered to fans, as it once did in their childhood, in the ballparks, to the authenticity of the game, to the aspirations of young people they mentored in the Elysian fields. Here, in 1986, listen to Jamadi's opening thought, followed by Roger Angel, about that growing rupture between the player and his fan.
4: Well, the amounts of money that have poured into organized Major League Baseball are absurd, from the point of view of, uh, of the average American wage earner or the average American fan.
2: Here's Roger Angel.
4: I think that the arrival of free agency and then the sudden gigantic escalation of salaries, uh, fundamentally did change, whether we like it or not, change the relationship between the fan and the player in baseball. Uh, We used to think of this as a blue-collar sport, and the man in the stands and felt about the player on the field, that he is one of us, this could be me. And when average salaries began to get up around the quarter of a million mark, he no longer could feel this way. And I think what's come along as a result of this, inevitably, uh, is a great rise of feelings of anger and bitter criticism and some cynicism directed toward the players.
2: In a discernible transformation underway today, that connection between the individual player and the fan may finally have ruptured. The centrality and the corrosive effect of money from television also has displaced the importance of the fan, except as backdrop and props, and the often distorted timing of the game, the glitzy filler used in the early innings to create movie stars out of a mediocre second baseman, and the use of statistical measurement of individual players that no one understands, including the commentator. Sadly, it's a drama intended to leave the fan only one clear frame of confident reference, the city.
0: Perhaps that rupture has led to the new form of connection between the fan and the team.
2: It has. The fan's commitment away from the transitory, wealthy individual players, and with more gratification, to the connection between the team and the city. The team as individual players to the team as the city. There is geography in memory in that connection, a way that fans in their home stadium or at home can still demand authenticity in the game and joy in this individual or family moment of leisure and not have their hearts broken yet again by greed, scandal, and cheating.
0: The City and the Team. The City, quote, fly over a great city at night and you suddenly see that pasture. And it reminds you that there was another America and we brought it indoors, in through the walls. For all the stresses and strains and violence, there are those moments when, in fact, we can all feel as if we're in an extended family. And as Bart Giamatti recognized, quote, it's an illusion, I know, but it's one of those absolutely necessary illusions to keep people going, so I love it. Marcus, your father wrote and spoke about baseball and the city in ways that seem today prescient and central to understanding the transition Neil believes is happening.
3: The city and the team were always central to my father, Diane. He was once asked by the Massachusetts Historical Society, what accounts for this love affair between America and baseball that has matured and changed but never died? He answered there and elsewhere, especially in the University of Michigan lectures published in Take Time for Paradise. Here is my own compendium on what he wrote. Sports and cities have always been allied. We see this influence reflected in the basic sports venue. From Greece and Rome to today, that venue is some version, grand or small, of the arena or amphitheater. But whatever it is and however it is shaped, the sports venue is urban in that it ranges in more or less orderly fashion according to class or economic standing, that is by price, a large mass of people often split in factions, the basic dualism of us versus them, a dualism at the heart of all sports where two parties compete in, the enclosure of the stadium delineating the people's paradise of the field.
0: So now what? Is baseball's path forward to so fully succumb to greed and the imperatives of television to be reduced over time to daily highlights and maybe the World Series, until even its timing is stretched out so much into the football season and change of weather to ensure its demise to no more than a local event competing with a Hallmark Channel rerun?
2: Diane, baseball may have to succumb to that failure to once again find its historic place in the American culture, where only the Elysian field of Hoboken is left for it and its fans. Yet, as Roger Angel was quick to remind the audience, at least then in 1986, we are not yet done with baseball. But more must be done to weed out the Zuckerberg mentality and the snakes in the garden.
0: So the debate is on.
2: Diane, first. I propose that every owner and potential owner and every player be obligated to visit the Baseball Hall of Fame and either the Jackie Robinson Museum in New York City or the Roberto Clemente Museum in Pittsburgh or the Henry Aaron Home and Museum in Mobile, Alabama. An in-depth tour led by an existing Hall of Fame inductee, those with the courage and character of Henry Aaron, aided by a museum specialist, an umpire and a young boy or girl prepared to make clear that they are the aspirants in the photographs behind the statutory tributes to Robinson, Clemente, and Lou Gehrig. It's about character and courage. Second, a preamble to the rules governing baseball should include the following. Every action by a player on the field that is found by the commissioner to be a premeditated action of cheating shall result in a fine and period of ineligibility, and the amount of that fine and length of that ineligibility shall be multiplied in duration and size as the proper exercise of the commissioner's duty and applied to the coach, manager, and owner of the team. Third, that in the methodology used to select players into the majors, the owners shall consider and document the player's character. And fourth, and perhaps we should call this one home, every new owner or potential owner seeking to purchase a team, every coach and player and office employee, shall be obligated to sit and listen to the full recording of Bart Giamatti's decision of August 24th. Not just the decision about Pete Rose, but the reasoning, history, and ethical values that underpin it, and the plainly worded expectation that that commissioner, had about the future, that is, to ensure the authenticity of the game on and off the field.
0: This is Diane Smith, and this is Downfall, Episode 2, Baseball's Public Trust and the Battle for the Game. Written and devised by Neil Thomas Proto. Production, sound, and editing by Baobab Tree Studios. Music provided by FreePlayMusic.com special gratitude to Yale University's Manuscripts and Archives, the Baseball Hall of Fame, Peter Norton Symphony Space Selected Shorts, CNN, and associate professor and actor Marcus Bartlett Giamatti of Temple University's School of Theater, Film, and Media Arts. We come back, once again and finally, to Bart Giamatti. John Dowd, who conducted the Rose investigation, recalled Giamatti's intent when they were awaiting a federal court of appeals decision on the commissioner's authority to rule on banning Pete Rose from baseball. Did he have that power, which Rose and his lawyers had disputed? Dowd recalled it this way, quote, Bart said to Faye Vincent and I on an airplane, he said they can take it to the Supreme Court. And if they reverse me, I will take it to the people. I will take it to every ballpark in America, and I'll ask every fan to vote themselves. Neil, you wrote about historian and cultural commentator David Halberstam's thoughts about Giamatti taking on the owners in the bigger quest for fairness, which Bart knew was inevitable.
2: David Halberstam, who had befriended Giamatti and interviewed him for his book Summer of 49, wrote later that Giamatti knew he'd, quote, end up clashing with the owners. Halberstam then conjectured, quote, whether given the forces that have worked greatly to lessen the game's attractiveness, Bart would have been able to hold the line against the power of greed and materialism is doubtful, but we would have had his voice. And yet, Diane, I confidently added the following in the article I wrote that you allude to, quote, Jamadi would have eloquently, forcefully, and publicly recognized that the fall from America's grace was occurring, that fairness and merit were torn asunder by the cheat in uniform or business suit. This Dante scholar knew where to place liars and greed-driven entrepreneurs who'd spread the stain they wroth in every town, city, and school that had a ballpark, green or sand or pavement. They'd be out of baseball. Jumaane never had to confront that choice. Yet who is to say that with his knowledgeable commitment to principle, to fans who embraced his respect for the game, grandparents holding tightly to grandsons and granddaughters, glove in hand, and to players who retained their pride in the game they loved that fairness helped them earn. Jamadi would not have engaged in the epic quest of a lifetime and that he would have won it. That, Diane, was Jamadi. He did not seek a safe haven.
0: Neil and Marcus were closing this podcast, appropriately, where we began, August 24th, 1989, with Commissioner A. Bartlett-Giamatti's own words and voice.
1: I will be told that I am an idealist. I hope so. I will continue to locate ideals I hold for myself and my country in the national game as well as in other of our national institutions. Let there be no doubt or dissent about our goals for baseball or our dedication to it, nor about our vigilance and vigor and indeed our patience in protecting the game from blemish or stain or disgrace. Let it also be clear that no individual is superior to the game.
0: That would be Bart Giamatti's last personally crafted public statement before his fatal heart attack on August 31st. His words still resonate, despite baseball's best efforts to forget them. The forces, ones Giamatti encouraged and believed in, still engaged in battle for the authenticity of the game, remain deep in the hearts and aspirations and memories of baseball as the truly American pastime. Sports writers, the Hall of Fame, umpires, the Little League in all its community and family forms remain on the field and in the game. The battle for fairness in baseball is not over. This is Diane Smith, and this has been Downfall. Written and devised by Neil Thomas Proto. Production, sound, and editing by Baobab Tree Studios. Music provided by FreePlayMusic.com. Special gratitude to Yale University's Manuscripts and Archives, the Baseball Hall of Fame, Peter Norton Symphony Space Selected Shorts, CNN, and Associate Professor and Actor Marcus Bartlett Giamatti of Temple University's School of Theater, Film, and Media Arts.